The story of Jesus' birth has become more than familiar to many in our culture. And today, we'll focus in on some of the finer details that you may have never considered regarding how this story was written. You have wandered your way back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Thanks for making the effort. This is Greg Hall, and this is episode 89. And today we're talking a little about how we can overlook the author's intent when reading the birth narrative in Matthew's gospel. And it's that story that begins in Matthew 118, and it continues all the way through the end of chapter 2. Now, those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a while, you may have already wandered through the Rethinking Advent mini-series that I did back in episodes 28 through 33. In that series, I discussed specifics about the family of Jesus, the timing of his birth. We talked about what the nativity may have actually looked like, including when the Magi would have shown up and why they brought those specific three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And back in episode 33, the last one in that series, I packaged everything we had discussed into a retelling of the birth story of Jesus. And if you've not listened to those episodes, you will definitely want to go back and give them a listen. In today's episode, though, we will not be repeating any of that information. And in fact, we're headed a completely different direction. In the Rethinking Advent series, what I was trying to do is combine the information from both Matthew and Luke's birth narratives into one story. And I argued that we often omit many of the details, and then we compact others to make the story fit into something that's really easily presented in a one-hour service at Christmas time. But rarely do we focus on the differences between the two accounts. We don't take time to do that. So in the first half of today, we'll be comparing and contrasting maybe some of the details, the content that Matthew includes versus how Luke has written his version of the story. Then in the second part of the episode, we'll dive into that last verse in chapter 2, which claims the fact that Jesus lived in Nazareth was a fulfillment of what the prophets had spoken about. And we will discover that in all the prophets in the Old Testament, no one ever mentioned anything about Nazareth. So we'll take a look at at least one of the ways modern scholarship has tried to solve that little problem. Let's just dive in. Uh, we're in, again, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the first chapter and then all the way through the second chapter. And for this first part, I'm going to be using an article from December of 2019 by Peter Williams, Peter J. Williams, Dr. Peter J. Williams, who is the principal and CEO of Tyndale House in Cambridge. And he has written an article by the title, Why Are Jesus's Birth Stories Different? And to begin with, as he talks about this birth story being in the two Gospels, he says this, it is easy for these two perspectives to blend in our minds into the one story we know so well. 
In part, this is because there's much that is in common to both of them. Both Matthew and Luke highlight where Jesus was born, that his mother was a virgin called Mary, and that she was betrothed to a man called Joseph. Both versions agree that Joseph was descended from King David, that Jesus was named as directed by an angel, that his birth was a fulfillment of prophecy, and that it happened during the reign of Herod. Following his birth, Matthew and Luke both report that Mary and Joseph received visitors, and in Matthew that was the Magi, but in Luke it was the shepherds. And while there is consistency on these central points, there are also many differences between the two narratives. And with that, with those differences, it means that scholars have often been skeptical of the historicity of the accounts. And it also means that they have tended to view that Matthew and Luke, well, that they're independently composed and written. In other words, They didn't have knowledge of each other when they were writing their Gospels. So, in the prevailing scholarly view, uh, most people think Mark was written first. And Mark includes no birth narrative. And then that Matthew and Luke wrote later. They used Mark, most people think, but they also added their respective birth narratives. And for skeptical scholars, this really kind of creates a difficult position. If Matthew and Luke were written independently, then it becomes very difficult to explain how similar their birth narratives are unless they are based in fact. So those who claim that one account borrowed from the other and that the inconsistencies mean they can't be trusted as accurate, they are in effect insisting that neither Matthew nor Luke borrowed from the other and at the same time wrote incompatibly with the narrative from which they borrowed. And Williams suggests that despite this being highly unlikely, controversy has persisted around the birth narratives. Debate has tended to focus on two main points of difference between Matthew and Luke, and this is what he examines in more detail in his article. If Matthew and Luke were written independently— then it becomes difficult to explain how similar their birth narratives are, unless they are based in fact. And he's just asking the question, what exactly does the evidence show? And how should Christians approach this problem? So, continuing with William's article, he says, one way that people see tension between the narratives of Matthew and Luke is through what is left out of each of them. For instance, Matthew records the Magi, who are not in Luke, but Luke includes the shepherds, who are absent from Matthew. Matthew also doesn't mention that Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth before being in Bethlehem. And even more significantly, Luke has no record of the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem or of the flight to Egypt. And if all these things are true, the question really is, why does the other narrative omit them? 
Well, William says, for all the scholarly discussion around the two birth narratives, it remains the case that they agree on the main points and that they disagree on nothing. He says that while there are undoubtedly differences of emphasis, the accounts don't directly contradict each other. In fact, both the obvious and less obvious agreements between these two accounts are what we would expect if they were based on good testimony. Ultimately, there is no way for a modern reader to know why Luke does not mention the visit of the Magi or the flight to Egypt or the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. However, there are a number of factors that lend weight to the argument that it was a perfectly plausible editorial decision to leave these events out. First, Williams explains, it's important to note that the flight to Egypt need not have been very long. The key thing would have been just to get outside of Herod's jurisdiction. To do this, they might have gone as far as 200 miles away, but there are locations even closer than that. It may not have been a major trek. And what about Luke's description of Mary and Joseph's return to Nazareth after Jesus' birth? We find that in Luke 2.39. That reads this way, And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their city, Nazareth. So, while it doesn't mention the events that are recorded in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, it doesn't contradict those verses either. So, Williams gives this hypothetical. What if we were to consider a hypothetically rewritten version of Luke's account, and then he proposes that Luke could have been written this way, quote, And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, and then add just this little bit, they went down to Egypt and then, picking back up where Luke wrote, returned to Galilee to their city, Nazareth, end quote. So if it had been written that way, our attention would be focused on the question of why did they go to Egypt? In fact, Luke would have had to refocus his narrative in major ways even to make sense of this additional journey. And breaking away from Williams just for a minute, let me just suggest that the people that want to focus on Luke's omission of Egypt and that little trip, that they're suggesting that really there can be no such thing as selectivity from an author's perspective, and that Luke should be required to mention everything that Matthew considered significant. And Williams suggests that that is an approach that is in tension with having multiple accounts in the first place. And for that matter, I would just add, what should we do with Mark and John who don't even mention the birth story at all? Would we ever consider their Gospels suspect simply because they chose to skip that part of Jesus' story? No, we don't. We just assume that they had other purposes in mind. So, it is easy to be a critic from the future. (laughs) But we've got to remember, as readers, that we often bring our standards and expectations to the text. And in doing so, we may have distorted the freedom that the biblical authors had. 
in piecing together and crafting their individual versions of the gospel story. So today, I'm really encouraging you to get to know not just the birth narrative. We do that every Christmas at church, but I'm encouraging you to get to know the distinctives between the birth narratives. What does Luke include in his narrative? What doesn't he include? When Matthew wrote his gospel, why did he include certain things but not other things? And when we come across the differences— Although our first tendency would be to say something is suspect, our real tendency should be to ask the question, why is it that these authors only included what they did include? What was their reasoning and purpose behind those decisions? And let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that they had a purpose and that they were good authors when they crafted their stories. Well, to finish out today's podcast, we are going to skip now to the last verses of Matthew chapter 2, because it's in these verses that Matthew tells of the slaughtering of the male children in and around Bethlehem. We are told that Joseph was told in a dream to escape to Egypt for safety, and when it was safe to return, this is what the text says. Then, after being warned by God in a dream— He left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And to kind of take a scholarly look at this question of him being called a Nazarene and how the prophets had spoken about that, I have found an article in the Tyndale Bulletin It's from 2018, and the author is Jared M. August, and his article is entitled, He Shall Be Called a Nazarene, the Non-Citation of Matthew 2.23. And August sets up the discussion this way. He says, 14 times in his gospel, Matthew uses the verb fulfill, along with the citation of an Old Testament passage or theme. It's all over the place. We find those in chapter 1, 2, 4, 5, 8, 12, 13, 21, 26, and 27. And August says, of these passages, perhaps the one which has received the most discussion is the one we're going to focus on today in chapter 2, verse 23. It's that mention of he shall be called a Nazarene. An examination of the Old Testament reveals that this alleged citation is not to be found anywhere. But August says, however, once the grammatical details of this passage are examined closely, it is evident that Matthew did not, in fact, intend to allude to any specific Old Testament passage whatsoever. On the contrary, he sought simply to demonstrate that the geographical location in which Jesus spent his childhood, well, that's consistent with the Old Testament expectation of a Messiah from humble origins. 
In other words, Matthew's intention in this verse is to demonstrate that Jesus's hometown of Nazareth is consistent with the Old Testament hope of a Messiah who comes from an unexpected region as an unassuming individual. So, the interpreter, that's you and me, we should not approach Matthew 2.23 as an Old Testament quote. That's what the argument of this article is. On the contrary, it should be viewed as a summary of the anticipatory expectation of the prophets in general. So the author, August, is presenting this opportunity, this proposition, to understand the text maybe a little differently than we've read it in the past. And he says, perhaps the strongest grammatical factor which makes this proposal attractive is the similarity in the construction of some of these examples in Matthew's gospel, specifically 2.23, the one we're looking at today, he's comparing it to 5.17, 26.54, and 26.56. For instance, 5.17, that's the one that says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 26.54 says, How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And then the last example, 26.56, But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And August says, In each of these cases, Matthew uses the plural noun prophets rather than his standard singular noun, prophet. He usually uses the singular. In none of the formula citations where Matthew explicitly cites a specific Old Testament passage, does he ever use the plural prophets. He always uses the singular. In fact, even when Matthew develops multiple passages together, as he does in Matthew 27, 9, and 10, where he brings Zechariah and Jeremiah together, he still maintains his formula and refers to the singular prophet rather than the plural prophets. So breaking away from August's argument, I know we got kind of in the details there. He is suggesting that here at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, when Matthew says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. His argument is because Matthew is using the plural prophets there, that is consistent with him not trying to quote a specific prophet. Every time he tries to quote a specific prophet, and that's the majority of the time, he uses the singular prophet. So by the use of plural prophets here at the end of chapter 2, he's suggesting that it's not a specific verse that we should be looking for in the Old Testament. In other words, it's more of a general thought that all of the prophets had. And because it's a general thought, it might not be Nazareth that we're looking for, but maybe a characteristic of Nazareth. And in his article, August suggests this, that Matthew evidently sought to divide his formula citations into two primary groups. The first group being those which actually cite an Old Testament passage. There are 10 of those. And 
in those cases, he uses the singular word prophet. And number two, those which develop an Old Testament theme or expectation. There are four of those. And in all four of those, he uses the plural prophets. He says it this way, given the similarity of these four that uses the plural prophets, it appears that Matthew's focus in chapter 2, verse 23, is to demonstrate that Jesus's humble origins in the city of Nazareth are completely consistent with the Old Testament expectation of an unassuming Messiah. And although it may not be possible to identify the specific passages from which Matthew developed this expectation, this expectation is certainly a prominent focus of the Old Testament. All in all, August says, his study reveals that Jesus' role as Messiah was not just the fulfillment of specific predictive prophecies, but that it was also in fulfillment of the entire anticipatory hope of the Old Testament. So breaking away from August's article just for a second and kind of summarizing, I can tell you that for the majority of my life, as I've read chapter 2, verse 23 of Matthew's Gospel, and I read this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, and then in my version, There's a colon and then quotes surrounding, he shall be called a Nazarene. My expectation based on the English translation that I'm reading is that I should be able to go back into the Old Testament and find that exact prophecy somewhere in the prophets, somewhere. That is a question I would bring as a modern reader to the text. But it appears that sometimes in trying to answer the questions that we bring to the text, it's easy to overlook the original intent of the author. We looked at that in the first half of this episode in that the authors are including certain parts of this story for specific reasons. And when we often take the whole story and meld it together, what we're doing is we're losing part of the intent that the author brought to his version of the story. As weird as it may seem, our 21st century questions and the way of presenting this information actually might not be representing the concern of the original authors and the reason they wrote their Gospels the way they did. Well, that's all I got for today. Let me just close with this. The birth narratives are an important part of the good news of Jesus. That is true. But let's be careful not to read more into them than just what they say. I mean, as we approach the text, it's important that we don't assume we know why the author is including only certain details and leaving others out. We also may have to go outside the birth story to determine linguistic patterns that would suggest what the author means within the birth story. The longer I read and the longer I study, the more it becomes apparent that it is important for me to be willing to set aside what is sometimes my first impression of the text and to rethink 
what I thought I already knew about many of these very familiar stories. And in closing, let me just ask the ever-important question, who do you know that might find today's episode even slightly interesting? Would you be willing to shoot them a link right now? And then maybe a message saying, you've got to listen to this episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. 